Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Dineski, and today I spoke with Michael Roberts, the President and CEO of First Nations Development Institute. On this podcast in the past, we have discussed some of the difficulties that Native Americans face. However, First Nations work in addressing those problems is something you may not have heard of before. As you'll hear, Philanthropy and funding provided to Native Americans is an inexcusable small fraction of that distributed throughout the country. First Nations is doing important work in addressing the gaps created by this by providing direct financial grants and technical assistance to Native American communities as well as advocating on their behalf. First Nations is making a big impact on the lives of many people who face daily challenges that most of us are not familiar with. I think you'll find this discussion very informative and the work that First Nations is doing very inspiring. Welcome to Charity Talks. Today I'm speaking with Michael Roberts, the President and CEO of First Nations Development Institute. Michael, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me on. So to start, could you talk a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, so um, my name is Mike Roberts. I'm the President and CEO of First Nations. I'm also a Clinket tribal member, born and raised in southeastern Alaska. I'm not sure there's a whole lot else to tell. Um, you know, I, I've been at the helm of First Nations for about 15 years. Um, this is my second go-round at the organization. I worked at the organization from 92 to 97 as the chief operating officer and came back about 15 or so years ago to take over for the founding president of the organization. I'm the organization's second CEO. And what is First Nations' mission? Yeah, um, First Nations' mission is really to help Reservation communities, Indian reservation communities throughout the United States, diversify their economies. And, and we, you know, we, we kind of see our mission um, kind of in three important components. Um, we educate, advocate, and capitalize. And when I look about education, we talk about helping folks on the ground with specific learning opportunities, technical assistance and training. Um, and we also do a lot of research and writing to share lessons learned and um, good practices with our not-for-profit partners, reservation communities. On the advocate part, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on changing existing laws and changing existing perceptions and existing practices, both, you know, from a legal perspective, but also places like private philanthropy who underinvest in Native communities at an alarming rate. So we do a lot of advocacy on the part of Natives to the philanthropic sector. And then the capitalized part, you know, it takes the form of a couple different things. One is we do a lot of financial education and training for folks on the ground. We also um, are a grant maker. We've been a, uh, acting like the kind of, a kind of a community foundation for American Indian communities for, about, for the past 25 years and have a, a bunch of different kinds of funding mechanisms by which we make grants to community projects throughout Indian country. And then thirdly, we have been very involved in the formation um, of community development financial institutions and actually created a, a subsidiary of First Nations called First Nations Alista Corporation, which goes out and helps communities create these alternative financing mechanisms. And we actually just spun that organization out about six months ago at the middle of uh, two, 2020. 
but you know, in that period of time that we we've, we've helped create First Nations, at least uh, more than eighty CDFIs have been formed throughout Indian country, and it's not because of we're so wonderful and we're so smart. It's really because there's a lot of pent up demand for credit in Indian communities. Yeah, and I know that you already touched upon upon a lot of the projects that you work on. I know you also work with helping combat issues of access to healthy food. So for anyone who might not be aware, what are some challenges that Native American children and families face regarding access to healthy foods? And how does First Nations go about combating this issue? Yeah, you know, we've been involved in, in, the, in, the, in the food systems business for about 20 years. And, uh, and given that we've been around for about 40, it's about half of, half of our lives. And really, the, the reason we came into that, that work about five years into our grant making, we, we kind of looked back and looked at the, the body of our, our work and said, Who, who's applying to us for grants and, and, and for what reasons, right? And as we started looking, you know, started paging through our grant making, we recognized that more than half of the grants we made or half the requests that we received were for food systems like projects. So we created an initiative to, to really address that. And I think the, the issues of food systems in Indian country are pretty broad. I mean, they are from the, the immediate need of food security. Um, Indian people in reservation communities experience food insecurity at a higher rate than almost any other Americans, right? And we, we are big believers that, that food is a basic right. But more importantly, from an economic development perspective, poor folks spend a great deal of their income on food. Right, so they, there's a USDA study that shows that poor families and below the poverty line spend about 45 percent of their their income on food. And you look at the kind of purchasing power from a, from a household level, and then into a family, you know, a larger extended family level, into a community level, to a tribal level. That's a, that's a pretty big impact that these families are having on an economy somewhere, right? And usually in the case of food systems, uh, those dollars are leaving the reservation economy and, and being spent at food stores off reservation. So the, the economic activity and the economic benefit of those food purchases are showing up somewhere else but then besides the Indian communities themselves. And so for us as an economic development-focused organization, the idea of figuring out how to kill two birds with one stone, right, create economic activity or capture economic activity and create healthy, sustainable food systems makes a lot of sense that we're trying to figure out ways in which to create local mechanisms to capture those dollars that have historically left the reservation. And in doing so, you know, make a healthier economy locally and also provide probably healthier and more plentiful access to food to communities and community members. Yeah, and I think it's great. It sounds like First Nations really listens to the actual issues that these communities are facing and adapts their own models to that. So I think that's great too. Well, you know, I'll say this. You know, I'm you know, I wasn't around at the beginning of First Nations. I, I joined the organization about twelve years into its lifetime. But the philosophy from, from the very beginning for First Nations has been that that you know, we at First Nations in our ivory towers in Longmont, Colorado, well, first of all, there's no Ivory Towers in Longmont, Colorado. But second of all, like we don't think that that we're the experts when it comes to the work that needs to be done in Indian communities. That we we are um, very much aware that the people who are affected by these daily challenges also are, are readily aware of the solutions that need to happen. Right, and oftentimes, what's keeping them from enacting those solutions is 
access to some sort of finance team and probably some access to technical assistance and training. And this is the model of First Nations. We provide a little bit of cash, a little bit of technical assistance to shovel-ready projects. Um, and the, the real genius is with the Indian communities and the Indian people themselves. And how does First Nations, this is a similar type of question actually, but how does First Nations help to strengthen tribal communities and institutions as a whole? You already addressed a lot of ways, but if you could get more in detail. Yeah, yeah so, we, so we've been in this business of, of, of doing economic development for 40 years and doing grant making for 25 years. And I would say that when, when we look back and assess what, what, where our grantees have been successful and where they have been less successful, there's usually a couple, in, a couple um, topical areas where people really show they could use help, right? On the staying healthy, surviving, continuing their, their good work. And one is raising money and the other is kind of managing money. And, and when community groups can't, you know, community organizations can't do either of those well or one of the two well, they, they usually struggle quite a bit. And so we, you know, we go in and we, we do our grant making, especially for our large grants. We go in and look at the capabilities of organizations. I, I had the, the luxury or the experience of working in venture capital for, for five years before I came back to First Nations. And one of the things that venture capitalists do is they're always trying to figure out what are the risks that are involved in the project they're getting ready to invest in, right? And then so when they understand the risks, then they have to ask themselves, can our money um, mitigate those risks and make this a profitable adventure for us, right? So I took a lot of that same sort of thinking back to First Nations with me when we were making grants, when I came back, and it's like looking at the community and understanding where the risk is for the organization, where, what's going to happen here um, to make this not very successful. Is it leadership? Is it lack of capital? Is it lack of financial management? Is it a skilled staff, right? And so we've created this kind of organizational effectiveness questionnaire by which we go out and, and do kind of very somewhat informal interview with our grantees and talk to them about these different uh, components and then make our own kind of internal risk assessment of what's most likely, what's likely to go wrong, where, where, where could things go wrong that could really um, impact this community organization in a negative way, maybe even a, in a fatal way, right? And then we plan a total assistance plan in conjunction with the community project to make, try and mitigate those risks. So our assessment doesn't, isn't there to, or a yes, no decision for our grant making. It's more of once we've made the grant, how do we make this group the most successful that they can be by us layering technical assistance in with our capital? Yeah, I think it's really interesting also because something I like to talk about a lot on my podcast is really just using resources and money in general to make the biggest impact and making the most cost-efficient and effective decisions. So it sounds like that's a lot of what First Nations does as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not, I know... I, I'm not sure it's the most cost-effective, but I'll, we'll say it oftentimes is the most effective because of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So just really just creating the biggest impact with what you have, I think, in general. Right. And can you talk a little bit about uh, what do you think is the importance of providing resources and programs for young Native Americans in terms of strengthening Native American communities as a whole? Yeah, well, you know, I'll, I'll say this. And hopefully I'll answer your question. But, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a real conversation that needs to be had about equity in this country, especially in the private philanthropic community. 
Um, when you look at how much money is given to Native American causes by private philanthropy, it's a little bit, it's right around one half of 1%. When you, when you further drill down and look at how much that money is given to Native controlled projects, right? But, you know, projects are controlled by Native peoples themselves, not do-gooder people doing things for or to Indians. I would say for or to Indians. So when you look at how much money is given to Indians themselves to control their own destiny by private planting, it's 23 one-hundredths of 1%, right? We make up 2% of the population. So it's about, you know, one-eighth on an equality basis and, and a way underinvestment from an equity point of view. And so, you know, it, it's, 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 it's almost um, unimaginable how little is given. There, we did a study a few years back and, and talked to program officers and decision makers and foundations and asked them and trying to figure out their attitudes of why they're not giving to the Indian country because we knew the statistic was out there from our research. And a lot of the, the stereotypes that mainstream Americans have about Indians mainstream philanthropic folks have as well. And I'll say that we were a little bit taken aback because we thought this was a more highly educated population, a more socially just-minded organization for people. And so we were a little bit surprised by those findings. But when we kind of delve a little bit deeper into where these people got their information about Indians, it's in the same place that the general public was, right? It's you know, mass media, it's outdated K-12 history books, and whatnot. But I think what was disturbing for us was there wasn't a movement on the part of those same professionals in philanthropy to learn more and do more. Um, one of the people who are helping us in the study said there seems to be a willful ignorance and ambivalence on the part of philanthropy when it comes to Indian programs. And, and that's kind of, you know, tough, right? When you, when you have a, a, a group who's making decisions on, on funding to programs like ours and the communities we work with, Who's willfully ignoring and um, and and not engaging with our communities? That that's a tough place to be. Yeah, and I know that First Nations has so many resources for helping people learn more about Native American culture, and in addition to these economic issues. So I'm assuming you think that it's very important that there are these resources out there to help counter the media's often harmful depictions of Native Americans. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you know, what we, we see as uh, one of our many challenges or one of our many obligations is, is, is engaging with the general public and with our funders and helping them understand um, better the people that we, we work with every day. And so we do a lot of work, uh, research and writing to kind of show some of these, this underinvestment on the part of, of philanthropy. We do a lot of outreach to our philanthropic partners, sharing with them opportunities for them to fund and, and ways in which they can more easily fund in Indian country. And, and just in general, you know, we think that part of our uh, our work is to kind of uncover some of these myths about why people view us in a certain way. And about three or four years ago, we created this, this body of work called Reclaiming Native Truth. And essentially, the, the work was to see what, um, how do we change the narrative that Americans believe about India. And what was striking to us was that we couldn't change this narrative if we didn't understand what the, what the core narrative was. If we were going to you know, start trying to change the narrative without understanding what, what people really thought and believed, we'd only be kind of addressing the symptoms and not the base disease. So we spent a fair amount of time and money trying to figure out what that core narrative was. And, and then once we figured out the way in which the general public 
Beauty Indians, then we had a, a way in which to, or a platform by which we could like move on and start talking about creating new mirrors. And it's been, it was a pretty amazing body of work. Um, it's, you can find the work on our website at firstnations.org called Reclaiming Native Truth. But what's really amazing is we thought that this needed to really be um, put into a place or um, be, be created as a resource to help communities we work with. So we created these, this, these user guides to help communities we work with create better narratives. But knowing that we're only you know a very small part of the population, we also knew that we needed to kind of help our allies along in this in this work. And that we knew that we had great allies who are you know, speaking up for us in this inequity of, of funding and exposure. So we created a, a a side-by-side -side user's guide for our allies to help us in this narrative fight. And that's also um, on that stuff that, that we claim we needed to. So you know, we, we find this is a very important part of what we do is to just dispel some of these myths and create new narratives, new positive um, narratives about what's happening in Indian country. And then you know, we do some other things. Like we, a couple of years ago, we published a list of children's books that were written by Native authors. So if people are looking for something to give their grandkids or kids for birthdays or Christmas, they can find, you know, culturally appropriate books to pass along. And we've also, as a staff, created a, a larger reading list um, that our, our Native staff has put together saying, if you want to learn more about Natives, here's this great reading list that we've created. And then and it's segregated from economic development to history to modern literature to arts and culture. So, you know, if, if people have an interest in the Taco area, Hopefully there's a place on that list they can they can jump in and engage. Something a little different, but are there any particular experiences that you've had firsthand that you can share where you've seen the impact that First Nations has had on people's lives? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the one I alluded to a minute ago was this, this access to credit, right? There are 500, almost 580 federally recognized tribes in the United States. And there's probably a few hundred... Indian reservations and Alaska Native villages out there. Among those uh, many tribes and villages, there are only about 15 to 20 Native-owned banking institutions, right? Um, and then there are probably even fewer Indian-owned credit unions. So the, the lack of access to just basic financing and, and access to credit, so that's, you know, credit to buy a car, credit to have a personal loan as opposed to going to a payday lender, um, credit to sending your kid to school, credits to start a small business, just wasn't available, right? So in the work that First Nations has done in the past 40 years, and more specifically in the last 20 years, through our creation of First Nations Arista, we have created, like I, like I shared, more than 80 of these new development financial institutions who are every day making loans, um, you know, so they get, they get money from national funders and social investors. And they break it down into retail size pieces for these community development loan funds on the reservation themselves. And they're able to capitalize these, these folks enough so these guys can make these everyday loans um, in a very informed way to people they know and, and people in their community. And, and, these, and these CDFIs have amazingly low default and delinquency rates. And they provide, you know, you know, with 80 of them out there and you know, probably another 40 waiting for accreditation. You know, they're providing hundreds and thousands of loans on a yearly basis to Native communities that wouldn't have had that access before. Yeah, and how can people best help, and how important are donations also? 
Yeah. And for the longest time, First Nations didn't take any federal money. Yeah, it's more of a philosophical thing than probably a practical thing at times. But, um, you know, for the, for the most part, First Nations from the very beginning has gotten a lion's share of our funding from private philanthropy. I would say even today, about 80% of our, our funds come from private foundations. Everything from the, the Ford Foundations of the world all the way down to small family foundations and, and even individuals. And we probably get about another 10% of our money from, from individuals themselves. We have about 15,000 people who every year, you know, bless them, dip into their own pockets and pull out money and, and send us money. Um, and um, that's very important for the work that we do, especially those individual donors, because they allow us to have money that is um, not um, prescriptive for something else, that we get to use that on projects that we deem important and that the communities we work with deem important, not our foundation partners deem it's important. So it's a, these kinds of donations are, are incredibly important to the work that we do. Yeah, and lastly, is there anything else you'd like to add about First Nations or your work before we go? You know, um, I, I've been doing this for uh, more more of my life than I had ever imagined I would be doing it. I, I joined the organization in 92 and, and left in 97 and, and came back um, at the bequest of the, of the founder to take over for the organization and... I, I just find this work incredibly rewarding, right? That for me personally, I get to work with people like me every day, both in my office and the communities we find. And I get to make an incredible difference in people's lives, or not me personally, but you know, the, the work that, that we enable, right, with them, right? We get to support the work that they're doing that changes lives. You know, and, and, and we get to play a small catalyzing role in it. So I'm I'm just a huge fan of what we do. You know, I'm not, I'm not just drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm, I'm mixing it and pouring it as well. Um, and you know, my staff will probably tell you I, I could be doing a lot better on all of those things. But um, it's really it's really important work. You know, these are communities who have been marginalized for 500 or more years in this country, and you know, who have survived and are incredibly resilient through their creativity and their spirit. And, um, you know, and we get to be a part of that every day. And I think there's very few places where you can have that kind of engagement, either as a staff member at First Nations or a funder from a foundation or even individual donors to see the kind of impact you can have with a few dollars. Yes, thank you so much. I definitely think that some of the issues and struggles that Native Americans have are often not spoken about. So I'm really glad you were able to come on here and just talk about some of these issues and what you're doing to help it. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, it's things like this that, that make me optimistic that there'll be change. So thank you very much for having me.